You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here's one slammed into left field. How about that start to the World Series? Solaire will take the trip. And he puts Atlanta up one zip with a first swing of the fall classic. Left side, base hit. Here comes Gurriel. He'll score. Going to third with nobody there is Siri. He pops up, comes to the plate. Two-run score. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, October 28th. It is a day off in the World Series. The series is tied at one game apiece. Games three, four, and five will be in Atlanta this weekend. Hopefully, weather does not actually look that great in Atlanta, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, Matt, the series is tied at one game apiece, and obviously we're going to dig into all the interesting stuff that happened and may happen. But the thing that stood out to me the most, the thing I just want to briefly get to right away, because I found this so weird and fascinating. Houston won at home last night. It was the first time in three years and one day that a team won a World Series game in their home park. Three years. And the last time it happened was the 18 inning long game three that the Dodgers won in Los Angeles on October 26, 2018. Uh, that you and I, for the record, spent about seven and a half hours in a bar in Brooklyn watching uh, RIP Pacific Standard. And that was it. And then obviously in 2019, you know, all seven games were won by the road teams. And then last year, you know, neutral sites, cardboard fans, et cetera, et cetera. This hasn't happened in three years for even one game. And beyond that, no team has clinched at home in eight years since the 2013 Red Sox. And I guess what I'm trying to say is the next time someone talks to me about home field advantage in the World Series, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> That's a really good point. I was I remember being at um I was at games 3 and 4 in 2019 in in uh in in DC, you know, they were the first World Series games ever played in Washington, you know, or where the Nationals had ever hosted and uh they were pretty like lifeless games where the Astros won like, you know, I forget. I, there was nothing memorable about the games whatsoever. I think Bregman homered in one. That's what, I think that's all I remember. But uh, so, and, and I, unfortunately, I feel like the first couple of games of this series were kind of unmemorable too. Kind of maybe not blowouts, but but not that uh, tense in the late innings, at least. So hopefully, we get a little bit more uh, drama in the uh, in the upcoming games. Yeah, no, for sure. I was actually at the the clincher of the 2016 World Series where the Cubs finally broke the streak, but it was in Cleveland. And I remember thinking, this is super cool and fun, but man, imagine what Wrigley Field would have been like right now. <laughs> what when the when, I remember when the Red Sox won in 2013 that like one of the big storylines, which admittedly I thought was kind of lame. It, it was like this is the first time the Red Sox have clinched at home since you know 1908 or something, because in 04 they clinched in St. Louis, in 07 they won it in Colorado, so that was like a big deal. And it's funny that in retrospect now it sort of holds up in a weird way because it's the last time a team clinched the World Series at home. It's, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this time. So listen, it's it's tied at one. Uh, game one, 6-2 Braves win. Framber Valdez got kind of torched, which I was disappointed in because I love Framber Valdez and he looked so great against Boston. Um, is it already stale news to talk about how Charlie Morton broke his leg and then kept pitching? 
and then hit 96 miles an hour, which is like I the mean, most amazing thing. Although, I mean, like, I don't know if he's like post game Brian Snicker. I wouldn't say like he downplayed a little bit. He was like, I'm not sure he actually broke his, his leg was actually broken the whole time. I think he's like, I think he was like, it was compromised. And then he actually heard it on his landing. So he actually like the, the, the actual fracture happened on his landing. Not to take anything away from Charlie Morton. Um, but I too was as excited about this storyline when it happened in the moment. And then like, if anyone like, kind of poured water on it, it was Brian Snaker, surprisingly. Um, but it was still, you know, it was still kind of in the moment. It was kind of remarkable what had just happened. And, but kind of more importantly for the future of the series, kind of a big deal. Um, and really, I, I'm not sure a big enough deal was made about the Braves not winning game two because that really kind of puts them in a tough spot. We can kind of get to the specifics of each game in a second, but I feel like um, not winning with a fully rested Max Freed really puts them in a tough position. Yeah, I was kind of thinking since John Smoltz is there on the broadcast, they might just activate him and have him come out and start because they're sort of desperate and we will get to that in a second. Uh, do you know how many people tweeted at me about Greg Jennings after I tweeted about Charlie Morton, you know, hitting 96 and I'm like, what, Greg Jennings, what? It's like, like the old whiteout from the Packers and like a hundred different people made this joke and I had to look this up and apparently there's like a semi-famous YouTube clip from like 10 years ago where video game Greg Jennings in one of the Madden games like scores like a 90-yard touchdown while hobbling on what the video game said was a broken leg. I didn't remember that, but lots of people made sure I did. Um, game two was obviously a 7-2 Houston win. Jose Arquiti pitched pretty well. Max Freed, not so much. There's like a big a couple of plays in this I want to dig into in a second, but let's just set stage here. And game three will be Luis Garcia versus Ian Anderson. Um, the weather looks really bad. It looks like it's going to be you know, 50 degrees and maybe kind of rainy, sort of windy, which I guess, you know, really sets the stage for a Halloween weekend I mean, World Series game. Um, and then you're right. I don't I don't necessarily know who's going to start past that. So I want to get back to um, the first two games that I played. Let's take a quick break and we'll get back and dig into some of the most interesting moments of the first two games. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. Eddie Rosario leading it off in the third. 3-0 Atlanta. Ground ball right side, base hit. That is already seven hits by the Braves against Valdez. That is down the left field line. Should be extra bases. Rosario... Has another hit, a one-out double. We're back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Matt, I have a question for you about a, uh, a strategic moment in game one. So we talked a lot, everybody talked a lot about how Eddie Rosario had been phenomenal in the NLCS, hitting out of his mind and mostly doing so out of the leadoff spot because Jorge Soler, who had been hitting leadoff, is mostly unavailable because he'd been out on the COVID list. He came back. He was available, and Brian Snicker put him at leadoff 
in game one. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He was he was very good there. I don't expect Rosario to keep doing what he was doing. And I was a little surprised uh, before and even like after the game at how much blowback that decision got where people were like, how could you do this? Rosario, like, oh, you're going to mess with Rosario. And Rosario still got two hits, by the way. I was like, I thought it was a perfectly reasonable decision, uh, especially with a lefty starter on the mound. I was surprised to see people didn't feel that way. Yeah, I was surprised. And I think it's, you know, we talked about this on the podcast the other day, and I even had uh, one of our listeners reach out on Twitter, a Braves fan, you know, going into the game, I think the day before, like media day, Snitker had kind of hinted that he was going to stay with Rosario in the leadoff spot no matter what, which is what I said on the podcast. Uh, and then he subsequently in his pregame in game one basically said, I, you know, I tossed and turned and we decided, you know, we're going to go with the platoon matchup, um, which, you know, turned out pretty well with Jorge Soler leading off the game with a, a home run, the first true World Series home run, leadoff World Series home run in game one uh, in uh, in history. So it it it, it made it made sense. Um, and it obviously quote unquote worked in, in game one. I, you know, and they went back to it in game two with, um, putting Rosario in the leadoff spot, which I still don't love when Freeman's batting second, cause it still sets you up to, uh, have lefties back to back. But even last night, the, the, the Astros used uh, Phil Maton instead of Blake Taylor in that spot. And when it, when it came up in this sort of like a, a semi leveraged spot. So, um, uh, it's been in the, the sort of like, uh, the back and forth there has been interesting. Yeah, by the way, in, in game one, I think it's worth taking a minute, um, especially since you mentioned Maton, to credit both of the bullpens. Because if you look at game one, right, Valdez did not pitch well, you know, left after two innings. Morton uh, was pitching fine, but he got hurt, obviously, and he was out after two and a third. And as I choked on Twitter, whenever we talk about starting pitchers not going deep this postseason, it's not always a strategy. Sometimes it's your guy gets hurt or lit up. And then if you look at what happened afterwards, right, four different Braves relievers, Minter, Jackson, Matzik, and Will Smith, and five different Astros relievers, uh, Garcia, Odorizzi, Maton, Stanek, and Rayleigh, they, they pitched pretty well. You know, you would think by this point of the postseason, with how heavily used all these guys have been, especially Tyler Matzik, who's probably pitching right now while we're talking somewhere. And <laughs> I, I think if you'd asked me coming into the postseason, yeah, obviously you wouldn't know who's in the World Series, but let's say, you know, look at the Astros. And look at the Braves, and this is before Morton got hurt and before McCullers got hurt. What is the one unit that you would have the biggest concern about? And I probably would have said the Atlanta bullpen. I didn't have a great deal of confidence in them. And they have been and continue to be fantastic. And it's not just Matzik, right? Like, Minter's looked incredible. You know, Will Smith has been better than I thought. And, uh, man, they're going to need to be because <laughs> they're going to get a lot of work coming up. What what did you think of that you know decision by Snicker basically to go even with a huge lead to to basically burn all of his best guys in game one you're talking yeah. about I um I think it made sense because you know they they had a day or two off before and obviously after game two there's another day off after that I don't know how much he knew about Charlie Morton's status in the moment you know like you know he got hurt and I guess they had announced in like the sixth inning or something that he'd broken his leg and it was going to be out I don't. I don't mind him saying I'm not going to let I don't know who's the last guy off the bench like it's it's Davidson now but he wasn't even there at the time I, I really don't have a problem with him saying I'm going to use these guys because I have to win this game it is quite literally a World Series game <laughs> and the Astros lineup I mean it's not like they can't come back from a four run deficit in like ten minutes so I didn't really have a problem with that you know I mean I I see what you're saying I mean, it, it like there was definitely a part of me that was sort of wondering if he was going to maybe try and you know tempt fate a little bit and maybe use uh. You know Jesse Chavez, for example, first stretch against the bottom. You know against the uh, 
you know, the bottom of that lineup, which is, you know, you know, the last couple hitters are pretty weak in the Astros lineup. So maybe if you had Chavez against like Guriel and then McCormick and Machado, you may be able, uh, Mustar Maldonado, you might be able to kind of get, get, get through that. But, um, I, I, I certainly understand. You have a lead. You want to make sure you lock down the win. And you're also hoping, frankly, that Max Fried, you know, your best healthy starter, is going to be able to give you some length in game two. I mean, I think that's sort of the big picture, you know, thought process there. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. So obviously, Morton's hurt. And you're looking at yourself and saying, well, we got two starters down. We have Ian Anderson and we have Max Fried. And I don't know how much confidence you have in Max Fried. So last night in game two, uh, part of it wasn't his fault. So six earned runs in five innings, not great. In the bottom of the second inning, he gave up five different singles. And, you know, some of them were hit hard. Some of them weren't. Some of them were, you know, well-placed grounders or whatever. The one I wanted to talk about, and this is going to sound weird coming from me, I know. Why did the Braves shift Yuli Gurriel? And I'm absolutely not an anti-shift agenda out here. I'm in favor of the shift. I have written at length about how the Braves deciding to shift in the middle of the May basically turned their defense around. They would not be here if they didn't start shifting because their defense played fantastically after that. But yeah, Yuli Gurriel is unshiftable. He's been shifted 3% of the time this year. So I found that he had an opposite field hit against the shift twice all year in the same game, oddly. And that's not because he can't do it. It's because no team was foolish enough to shift on it. So what were the Braves doing there? Um, I, th- I think, um, <laughs> I think, and like the thought process there was, you know, it was sort of in concert with the way um, Max uh, Max Freed pitches to right-handed hitters, um, and and John Smoltz talked about this on the broadcast, and actually, our and our, I know, uh, I, I knew he was going to because um, our our colleague David Adler had helped uh, the Fox the Fox producers with some research on this um, about how Max Freed likes to attack right-handed hitters inside, especially down and in, and if you watch where Travis Darno, the Braves catcher, was was set up against. Uh, Guriel, he was he was down and in. He was trying to pat him inside with fastballs. I think the the thought process was, we're going to pat him down and in with fastballs. He's going to hit it into the shift. So it was like a, it was a strategy that was in, aligning the, the 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 pitching approach with the defense. Now, when that goes awry, is when you miss your spot. And uh, Freed missed the spot. It was a little over out over the plate. And Guriel, who is has incredible bat to ball skills, as you alluded to, was able to kind of inside at it. Uh, against the shift and quote unquote beat the shift. And that really, that really opened up the inning. What interested me was that for Guriel's next at bat with Freed still on the mound, Ozzy Albies went back to the second, to the first base side of second base. He was still kind of shifted towards the middle, but he was definitely like for the first at bat, he was on the shortstop side of second base, right? Uh, The third base side. And then for the next step out with free, they definitely hedged. They're like, okay, maybe we're not going to do this again. It was almost like we got beat. We're not going to do this again. But the for Guriel's final two at bats against Dylan Lee and Drew Smiley, Guriel, uh, sorry, Albies was back on the third base side of second base. So clearly, the Braves are, were undeterred by this. They're like, this is our this is our strategy with Guriel. Maybe for one at bat with Free, they knew that Free got kind of got beat by it and might have been kind of annoyed. But they, you know, they they went they went back to it, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then later in the inning, so the Martin Maldonado play and Maldonado is on this roster because he's a phenomenal defensive catcher. You know, everybody talks about how great he's behind the plate. He's got a great arm. He's not much of a hitter. If you're not getting Maldonado out, it probably does not bode well for your chances of success. So two batters after the Gurriel single. So Jose Siri had beat out a ground ball and Maldonado comes up and hits a single to left field. 
Dansby Swanson uh, tried to get it and couldn't, so he's now over by like the left field line. And Austin Riley, the third baseman, moves in to receive the cutoff throw. And Max Fried stands on the mound, does not go cover third base. So then Eddie Rosario throws to third base where nobody is, <laughs> which is a very a pretty fun visual. Um, and Gurriel scores and Siri scores. And I know it was only the second inning, but that sort of felt like the end of the game to me right there. It, it definitely it definitely did. It was uh, there was it was like a, it, 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 that, that play needed like yakety sacks playing over it because it was, <laughs> right. <laughs> one of the cool things is like, you know, this is one of the one of the those cool stat cast moments where, you know, I saw I knew Jose Siri was fast. I didn't realize he was that fast. We see on that play he had a 30.7 sprint, 30.7 feet per second sprint speed, which is, you know, basically as fast as you get in baseball. So, he, I mean, he got around the bases very, very quickly on that. So it's like, oh, wow, this guy is even faster than I realized. That was kind of a cool, cool moment. And I agree with you. After that moment, it was kind of like, eh, we're done here. It sort of felt that way in both games, hasn't it? Like the game one got off to like a really interesting start. And then there were so many more innings after that. You know, this one was like, okay, it's the second inning. And then it was, I don't know, the, the momentum seemed to start dying. By, by the way, since I said the word momentum, we're in agreement. Momentum does not exist anymore, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the thing for the Braves is Freed, you know, from a, from a quality of contact standpoint, he pitched pretty well. That's the thing is like the 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 overall, the box score line does not do him justice, right? He, after this, he even settled down and retired 10 straight at some point. He did actually give them some some length. Um when all was said and done, it looked like, you know, he might not get out of the you know, third inning and he ended up going five. So like in the end, he actually pitched okay. I mean, that inning, it was, I mean, it was, it was seeing eye singles. I mean, that Maldonado single was a, you know, 23% hit probability, 89 miles an hour off the bat. That was a seeing eye single if there ever was one. Yeah. I think that, um, that kind of bat or that, or that kind of batted ball. If you ever hear anyone say, try to pitch to contact, that's why you don't, because that happens sometimes. <laughs> you want to get strikeouts. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we will look ahead to game three of the World Series. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For Houston to get right back on top. It's up to Jose Siri, the rookie. Jammed. It'll score a run and a safe all around. 2 1 Houston here in the second. And that's into left. He's got another. And a road Texas welcome for Drew Smiley. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Game three of the World Series is Friday night in Atlanta. As I said before, the forecast does not look favorable. Ian Anderson will start for Atlanta. Luis Garcia for Houston. This is possibly, and I say possibly because I have no idea how the world will turn out. It is very possibly the, the final handful of games where you could have a pitcher in the starting lineup. If the NL gets the DH, which I think everybody thinks will happen at some point in the near future, if not next year, 
And that means that Dusty Baker may be the last manager to have to make a really interesting decision. And that's what do you do with the guy who's your DH who's not a great outfielder? Jordan Alvarez uh, has been the DH for the first couple of games. But they're going to Atlanta. There's no DH. You don't really want to sit Alvarez. You don't really want to sit Michael Brantley. And you definitely can't sit Kyle Tucker. So he could just, you know, put Brantley on the bench or Alvarez on the bench. But my guess is that for one of these games, you're going to see an outfield of Alvarez in left, Tucker in center, and Brantley in right. And if that happens, that would continue a wild ride for Astros center fielders. In the first half, it was Miles Straw who got traded. And then it was mostly Jake Myers who hurt his shoulder against the White Sox. And then in game one, it was Chaz McCormick. And in game two, it was Jose Siri. And in game three, it might be Tucker. And by the way, Myers, McCormick, and Siri, three rookies at center field. Who does that? Uh, that's it's it'll be it is a fascinating decision because I think you know the the thing that Dusty Baker and you know the the, the Astros decision makers have to deal with is like you know a lot of times when we've seen some of these DH types shoehorned into the outfield in. Uh, in World Series games, I think more recently, the most probably more, more, most recent uh, notable example was Carlos Santana playing left field for the Indians in 2016. Is like there's an obvious weak bat in the outfield they want to replace. Like Michael Brantley's a really good hitter. Um, he's not a very good. He's not a great outfielder, but I'm, I feel way more confident about him in the outfield um, than I do Jordan Alvarez. He's actually made a couple of nice catches in the first first two um, first two games of the series. So it's not like you're like oh we're we're placing it's going to be a huge offensive upgrade if we did this so that's why you can't if you're going to do it you must have to kind of go all in you know originally my thought was oh they'll just replace Brantley but like it's almost not worth doing so it's like if we're going to do it we are going to go all in and try and get that that offensive upgrade so we're going to replace Siri or McCormick in center in which case then you're really really potentially downgrading your defense you know it's funny there is one example more recent than Carlos Santana do you know who it is Jordan Alvarez because this happened in 2019, right? When they went to DC and uh, it was also- that's how, that's how unmemorable those World Series games was. I don't oh. even remember that you're on Alvarez played the outfield. Well, he, he did it once. This is like the best case scenario here, right? So they, the first two games were in Houston, EDH. Game three and game four, he was a pinch hitter. And in game five, he played left. Brantley was in right. And George Springer was in center. Uh, Tucker was on the bench. It could not have worked out better for the Astros because in his first at bat, Alvarez crushes a two-run homer. And the next time up, he singles and came in on a homer. And his third time up, he singled and he left for Jake Marisnik as a pinch runner, who would be the defensive replacement. And he only got one ball hit to him in the outfield. And it was like a no brainer. You and I could have caught this ball. You know, you could not possibly have drawn that up better. I don't know if that's necessarily something you can count on, but I, I do go back to the um, the Santana game. And if you don't remember in uh, I don't remember which game number it was, but one of the World Series games in uh, 2016 with the Cubs against Cleveland, Carlos Santana, who had been originally a catcher and then more of a first baseman DH, had played left field. And he never had started a game in left field. He had like a couple of mop-up innings there, like five years earlier or whatever. Well, Cleveland won that game one nothing, And nothing interesting happened. And I'm, I'm looking through this now, like trying to find similar examples. And for the most part, there's just not that many balls that are hit to you in like the first six innings. Because that's what it is, right? Like if you're up, then you get that guy out for defense. And if you're down, well, then sort of who cares because it didn't work out anyway. Like, I'm, I'm kind of talking myself into the idea, I think especially in game three, because you're going to have Ian Anderson on the mound, who's a righty. And if you go with your three best hitters of these five outfield options, Alvarez, Tucker, and Brantley are all lefties, you know? And then you can go and bring in uh, Siri or, or McCormick off the bench if you need to. I'm, 
I'm talking myself into this being a good idea, but for all the numbers, it only takes one really bad outfield play and that ruins everything. Exactly. I think you make, I think you make a really good point. Game three, it might actually make uh, – you might – you might make some sense for the reasons you mentioned, you know, after that, right. Um, the Braves are going to, it could be two bullpen games and they, all they basically have in their bullpen is lefties. So in those cases, you might actually want to want to go with the better defensive lineup and have presumably Alvarez coming off the bench as a pinch hitter. For me, here's the reason why you put Alvarez on the bench. And that is you're going to have the pitcher spot. And then you also have one other spot in your lineup, Maldonado, that you really want to reserve the right to pinch hit for. And if you start Alvarez, the, the Astros bench as it is is not very strong. So if you start Alvarez, then your bench is really weak. And then you you have two, and you, you suddenly have two pinch hit spots, right? You've got Maldonado and the pitcher spot. And in games one and two, the Astros had instances where they probably should have pinch hit for Maldonado and did not, right? In game one, he came up with first and third and one out in the fourth first A.J. Minter. They were down 4-1. This was really their best chance to get back in the game. He struck out. They don't score. Uh, they, they lose 6-2. Game two, we already discussed this. He comes up bottom two, first and second with one out. Yes, he grounded it through the hole, but it was like seeing eye single. Like it was, it was you know, 23% hit probability. They kind of got lucky, especially then with the misplay and two runs scored. That was a fluke. Among players with at least 400 plate appearances this year, that's 188 players, Maldonado had the fifth worst weighted runs created plus. He hit 172, 272, 300, right? So against a right-hand reliever, you can easily pinch at Jason Castro for him, um, their backup catcher. That makes sense. Um, against the lefty, there's not a great option. You know, you know, Oledmus Diaz or Marvin Gonzalez. But Jordan Alvarez doesn't really have pronounced platoon splits. So I kind of love the idea um, maybe not love, love the idea, but I like the idea of having Alvarez um, available off the bench for a high leverage spot, knowing that you have two spots in your lineup you're really going to want to pinch it for. Who is the Astros emergency catcher? Oh, I don't know. That's a good I, don't, I, I don't know either, but <laughs> I, I'm asking because while I generally agree with everything you just said, there's no way they're hitting for their starting catcher in the fourth inning. You know, well, because, that's, but but then you, I, I guess, but at least then you have you have Alvarez for the pinch for the for the pitcher spot if he comes if the pitcher spot comes up in a big in a in a big moment like so if, so knowing that you may want to pitch it from Altonado later in the game you you sort of can, you can use you can use um, Alvarez there obviously if you're going to pinch it from Altonado you're going to pinch it for him with Castro because it's you don't want to burn too you don't want to you don't want to like. Because Castro might be your best pinch hit option against a right-handed pitcher, too, right? So you don't want to like pinch hit Alvarez from Maldonado and then bring in Castro as for defense right after that. You basically burned your two best pinch hitters, you know. So um, I just think it's something to consider. I, I agree with you. You've talked me into it. I think against Ian Anderson, you do this. I think for for games four and five, knowing that it's just going to be a slew of left-handed pitchers, you might want to rethink it. But here's the thing: if they start Alvarez and they win game three, they're going to do it again in game four. A hundred percent. A hundred percent, yes. Um, I don't know who the emergency catcher is, but I'm just going to assume it's a Ledmis Diaz because that seems to make the most sense. Before we move on, I just want to give you a little bit of historical context here if this happens. Kyle Tucker is a good corner outfielder. He uh, rates very well in the StatCast metrics in right field. He was a gold glove finalist in left field last year. He has only played five career games in center, four starts and one game off the bench. And I thought to myself, well, that's really interesting. I got to figure out in a World Series game, 
when has someone started in a position where they had such little experience? And I asked our colleague Jason Bernard to help me out with this as he did. And we could go back to World War II with this. <laughs> this one's going to make you laugh. Do you know who currently has the record for the fewest career games in a position for specifically to center field before starting in center field in the World Series game? Jose Siri <laughs> yesterday, who had seven career games. He only made his major league debut on like September 3rd. But before that, uh, it was Jacoby Ellsbury who started in center in 2007, replacing an ineffective Coco Crisp. Hey, it's another Coco Crisp reference after 18 games. And before that, it was like, you know, Mickey Mantle got hurt in the 57 World Series. So Tony Kubek was out there after like 22 games. Um, so this would be at least in the post-war era and possibly earlier because we just couldn't go that far back with the data. Kyle Tucker could potentially be the least experienced center fielder to start center field in a World Series game. Um, for all positions, the record is Carlos Santana, as we said. He had never started a game and left before going out there. A couple guys did it with four games. Tucker would be tied with mere five games of experience with Miguel Cabrera, who played in right field, started there in a 2003 World Series game, and Brian Hunter, no, the other Brian Hunter, who started in left field in 1991. I think that's really interesting. And the fact that they're doing this with three rookies in center and a guy who doesn't play center is maybe like one of the more underrated or you know overlooked storylines of the World Series to me. Yeah, no. Well, I guess we'll we'll find out um, tomorrow tomorrow evening what they're what they're going to do. Let's talk about who might start in some of these games. So we know it's Anderson. We know it's Garcia in Game Three. Uh, there will not be Charlie Morton. There will not be Lance McCullers. There will not be Huascar Noah, who was removed from the roster in the NLCS. So for Game Four. For Atlanta, I mean, it sounds like it might be bullpen games in both game four and game five. I don't think they would bring back Max Freed on three days rest in game five, just because he hasn't really looked that good anyway. So you're going to see combinations of Drew Smiley, Tucker Davidson, Kyle Wright. I mean, the whole kitchen sink, really. Um, there's, uh, there's really not a good answer to this. And again, this is not like the strategy Brian Snicker wants. He's not going into this saying, yes, this is great. I can't wait. It's actually going to be even worse in Atlanta. Because now you got the pitcher hitting, right? If this had happened in the American League Park, okay, you pitch until you need somebody new. Now you got to worry about, oh no, like Kyle Wright's coming up in a big spot. Like, what do I do? That, that is going to make this so much harder. Yeah, we're probably going to see some relief pitchers ending up getting some at bats these <laughs> next couple games. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I, I, if if it were me, I would just I would just say right now, if I'm the Braves, I'm saying my bet. I'm not winning, like sort of accept the fact that like we're not winning this in five games and say we basically need to we need to get this back to six and seven with Freed and Anderson lined up on regular rest. Right. I think that's where that would be my starting point in my thinking and just sort of work backwards from there. There was, you know, they asked Max Freed last night about pitching on short rest in game five and he was like, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. I just don't think that like I don't see enough upside there to make it worth it. Because if you do that, you, you know, at best, you're, he's going to give you four innings, right? And, you know, A.J. Minter just gave them, you know, two-plus innings the other day. So I think your, your best bet is hoping that you can have your, your, your two healthy pitchers available for six and seven on full rest and say, okay, we've got three games at home. Hopefully we can win two of them um, and at least one and get the series back to where we feel like we're at, we're at, full, we're at full strength. And so it's going to be the kitchen sink. They've the kitchen sink has kind of worked for them in a lot of games this postseason, so I don't think that they should be afraid of kind of of, of having to do that. You know, the, the, this unheralded bullpen has come through, and they're going to need to keep coming through if they're going to win the World Series. Well, Game Three, now that we're like thinking through it, it really feels like a must-win for Atlanta in a lot of ways. You know, because this is the game you have, of the next three games. You have one starter 
and it's Ian Anderson in game three. And if you lose game three and you're down two to one and then you're going into two bullpen games, that is a really bad spot to be in. Not that the Astros are in great shape either, right? Because they're probably going to start Zach Greinke in game four. Maybe Jake Odorizzi, maybe an opener, maybe some combination of those two guys. I don't know. As we've talked about recently, we both absolutely love Zach Greinke and have no confidence in him as a pitcher right now. <laughs> you know, like it's, that last time out against the Red Sox was hard to watch. And maybe he can come up with something like he's, why would I rule anything out that Zach Greinke could do? I don't have a great deal of confidence in him, but you get past game four and then you're sort of lined up, right? Like I know Valdez didn't pitch very well last time out, but he's he's a talented pitcher, right? Game five, Arkady in six. And then if it goes seven, you know, Garcia and your whole bullpen behind him. Like the Astros are clearly in a, a better spot right now than the Braves are. Yeah, I think they could. I think they'll they could treat Game Four. I mean, the guy I'm interested in in Game Four is Christian Javier, who pitched again last night and was a, was again very good. A one of the third scoreless innings. He's been low key incredible this October. Has now thrown nine innings pitched. Has has not allowed a run. Fifteen strikeouts, five walks. Um, a real juxtaposition from October when he was. Ab- I mean, September when he was absolutely terrible. Had a a seven five three ERA the last month of the season. But his slider has looked really good, and I have to. Like, I don't know if it's going to be some sort of like Granky Javier tandem in game four and who would start and who would come in after that remains to be seen. But I sort of see that as, okay, even, even from those two guys, you feel like, okay, can we get five innings between, between these two pitchers? That's if I'm the Astros, that's kind of my, my best case scenario strategy is game four is like, okay, can Granky and Javier give me, give me four plus innings together. I do want to talk about a couple of hitters on each side here. Unsurprisingly, being randomly hot for a couple days does not sustain over a long period of time. Jock Peterson hit two pinch hit homers in the NLDS. He has started every game at right field since. 36 plate appearances. He's hitting 176, 222, 265 for a 487 OPS. I'm uh, I'm actually kind of wondering now that there will not be a DH in Atlanta if he doesn't lose a starting spot, you know, because they'll probably want to get Soler back in, I would think. And Eddie Rosario, who actually did get a couple hits in the first game, so good for him, is 0 for his last five, which again is meaningless, but also the whole streak was meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I, do you think Peterson's going to start? Uh, I think he will probably, I think they'll just go back to platoons, right? And so I think it'll kind of depend on, um, I think it'll depend on the, the handedness of the pitcher, but I wouldn't be, I guess even with the right hander, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Jack has always been kind of a streaky hitter and you knew that wasn't going to last, you know, <laughs> the way, like any streak, it wasn't going to last forever. So uh, I think I could see him getting a start against a righty, but I wouldn't be surprised if he gets benched. On the Houston side, the guy who's fascinated me is what is going on with Alex Bregman? And when we were previewing the series, we sort of briefly mentioned that, you know, Bregman had been phenomenal in 17, 18, 19, only okay last year, but you know, whatever, weird, stupid season, not too worried about it. And then he was only okay this year. And I know he missed some time with injury, but over the last two seasons, he's been about 15% above league average as a hitter, which is, is good. Like it's not bad, but it's certainly not the star level Bregman we'd come to know. In the postseason so far, he's got a 634 OPS in the ALCS and World Series combined. He's hitting 167, 235, 267. Uh, that's really bad. It's not strikeouts. You know, only five strikeouts and 34 plate appearances is nothing. It's not bad luck. If you look at, you know, the expected qualities of his batted balls, it is mostly grounders. If you go back to his huge season in 2019, uh, when he hit a ton of homers, 31% ground ball rate. This year, it was a 41% ground ball rate. This year in the postseason, 53% ground ball rate. 
it is hard to reach those short boxes in left field when you're hitting the ball on the ground. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on, but it's it's one of those things where it was like a curiosity to me a couple weeks ago that he hadn't been great. And it's sort of starting to grow into more of maybe of a concern. He definitely feels like, for lack of a better word, like the weak, the weak spot in the heart of that lineup right now. That's for sure. All right, Matt, I know you want to finish off with a rant, and I love I love when I don't know what the rant is going to be. Sometimes we coordinate, sometimes we don't. I legitimately have no idea where you're about to go with this, and I'm very fascinated to hear it. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's a rant. It's also something really interesting that I learned. Um, uh, it's a, 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 an odd historical tidbit about baseball World Series start times. So every year during the World Series, it seems like people get amnesia, and they forget that baseball World Series games always start. After 8 p.m. Eastern time, and people – now, I know I know you can talk about the length of games. It's a separate conversation. But the start times always come up somehow, and people say, oh, the games used to start earlier. The games never started earlier. In fact, the games used to start much later. Now, sometimes they would end at the same time because they were, they were shorter games. But this idea that games started later is crazy, okay? For the last, like, 10, 15 years, they basically started at 8, you know, 8 or 8.08 or something like that, the 8 p.m. broadcast time, like 8.08, first pitch, what have you. In like the, I went back on the baseball reference as far back as they have first pitch times for World Series back box scores, which I think began in like the mid '80s. Pretty much consistently, games started after eight thirty Eastern time, so significantly later than they start now. So let's start there. Second thing, really interesting tidbit I learned in doing my research: Game Two of the 1987 World Series, which happened on a Sunday night, started at nine thirty Eastern time. How crazy is that? Additionally, Game 6 of the 1987 World Series started at 4 p.m. Eastern time, which is the last day game in World Series history. Of course, it wasn't really fully appreciated because it happened in the Metrodome. So it was still still uh, under artificial lighting. So you didn't even get to appreciate the fact that it was a day game. But is this because you saw Sweeney Murdy tweeting about the 1976 World Series this morning? <laughs> no, but it, okay. that reminded me of it. It came up the other day in a, in a Twitter conversation I was having with someone about start times. But um, – it uh, that reminded me of it. Uh, also, do you do you watch the show? Do you ever watch the show The Americans? Oh, I love The Americans. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's actually if you what's what's uh, there's a part in one of the seasons where they actually attend a World Series watch party, and I remember watching it, and it was the '87 World Series because if you don't know, The Americans takes place in the 1980s. Uh, for you listeners out there who have not watched the show, and they go to a World Series watch party, and it's in the afternoon, and I was like, that's kind of weird. That seems like it's probably like they oh the the. The, uh, the director's really screwed this up. There's no way that's true. But in fact, it was the 87 World Series. So it presumably was historically accurate because there was a day game in the 1987 World Series, which I think is pretty cool. Here's what I've learned about start times. You you cannot satisfy anyone or ever. Time zones exist. We have a wide country. Nobody on the West wants World Series games to start while you're at work. I, I will freely admit it's super frustrating that my son who's six and loves baseball can't watch the world series games i'm not thrilled about that um but also there's no way to satisfy everyone what what year did you say started at 9 30 game two of the 1987 world series what is there a reason for that or am i gonna have to go do some research now um i i you know it was on a sunday so i wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to stay away from football i don't i don't know um at first i thought oh maybe it's weather but the game was played in the metrodome so it couldn't have been weather <laughs> right <laughs> Well, that I'm going to have to go look at. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.